Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, episode 66. I'm Tiernan Duyeb and this week, as David Davis, the Brexit secretary and barely sentient fogpatch, as he says that he's pretty sure the UK will get a trade deal with the EU but he isn't certain, I too am pretty sure that I fit in a Radiohead t-shirt I bought in 2001, but we all know if I try it on, I'll probably tear it, ruining it forever and mostly hurting myself in the process. As I record this, the Conservatives have just signed a special deal with the Democratic Unionist Party, aka the political party version of that man with a megaphone who shouts on your local street corner about Jesus. And by special deal, I mean the Conservatives have basically handed over a tonne of cash in order for more power. And it is amazing that all the DUP asked for was cash, considering how easily they got it. Personally, for the same deal, I'd have gone for cash, an island, an insistence that Theresa May will only do PMQs while wearing a B onesie, and an absolute promise that Michael Gove would never ever be allowed to talk directly to me. But no, instead the DUP asked for £1.5 billion of funding, which the Conservatives managed to get from nowhere and hand it over. Yeah, just weeks after criticising Labour for policies that were dependent on a magic money tree. Because fuck you nurses, we need power more than health. The DUP will now be supporting the Conservatives on a number of their policies, giving them the sort of majority in Parliament that gives them power in the way being two centimetres taller than your mate means you might be able to beat them in a fight, but only if you haven't been kicking yourself in the face for the last eight weeks. In return for that support, Northern Ireland will gain that £1.5 billion of extra funds because it seems the only reason there isn't a magic money tree is because magic is evil, whereas this Christian miracle tree just won't stop giving. Still, we have absolutely no idea what the DUP will be supporting, as the Queen's speech last week had less content than a Paris Hilton's Greatest Hits album. Her Majesty turned up in her Ascot outfit because why bother taking her coat off for a five-minute visit? I'm surprised she didn't just do a drive-by of the House of Commons, flipping the bird out the window and shouting, Fuck you! all the way down Whitehall. It is far easier to mention what Her Majesty's speech included rather than didn't, and it seems that the Conservative manifesto is well and truly binned. Yes, that is right. Whether you voted for or against the Conservatives, they want to make sure they disappoint absolutely everyone. Speaking of disappointing everyone, David Davis has been attending Brexit negotiation talks with the European Chief Negotiator for Brexit, Michel Barnier, a man that David Davis described on the Marshall show as very French. This is presumably because he sighs and shrugs a lot, although considering how often that must happen around David Davis, I guess he assumes French people are absolutely everywhere. 
David Davis gave Bernier the obligatory gift of a book on mountaineering, presumably signifying that he knew negotiations would be a difficult trek through all the talks. Meanwhile, Barnier got Davis a hiking pole, making it clear what he wants the UK to go and do. Barnier laid out the timetable for negotiations, denied giving the UK any concessions as it's our choice to leave, and ruled out the possibility of a soft Brexit. Davis agreed to all of this because, hey, we've taken back control, and that means we've got an absolute fuckstick who probably spends every second of Brexit talks trying to understand all the funny accents and wondering why he can't get a proper cup of tea. May has offered EU nationals in the UK a fair and serious offer, which sounds a lot like they'll just get a Matthew McConaughey calendar. The deal offers EU citizens certainty over their future in the UK, and they are now all certain that it'll be a shit one ruled by arseholes. Well, it was the year anniversary of the Brexit vote last week, and the appropriate gift for a year's anniversary is paper, right? So it makes sense that the government appear to be completely folding under pressure from the EU. There's every bloody chance by the end of the week the UK government will have just handed over Michel Barnier £1.5 billion in the hope that he'll be a bit nicer. Meanwhile, Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn, a man who plays the game Risk by throwing all the figurines in the bin and popping a potted plant on the board instead, he appeared on the Pyramid stage at Glastonbury Festival, attracting the biggest audience since the Rolling Stones in 2013. Yes, it seems the Glastonbury crowd love nothing more than old men doing the same stuff they've always done for 30 years. All over the festival, a Jeremy Corbyn chant was sung to the White Stripes' Seven Nation Army tune, which is exactly the sort of thing a pacifist like him would strongly oppose. They may as well have sung, oh, Jeremy Corbyn, to the theme from the adverts for Trident Gum. Critics have mocked the idea that Corbyn spoke about stopping austerity to a crowd that paid over £230 a ticket, but that mainly shows those critics don't understand that people do save up for Glastonbury tickets. A number of people that perform or do charity work, they're getting for free. That's what I've always done. And really, the only thing that makes anyone upset about champagne socialism is that it makes other rich people look shit for having money and not caring about anyone. Also, Corbyn's speech was broadcast on the BBC Glastonbury coverage, prompting puckered arse in a pinstripe suit Nigel Farage to tweet, why should we pay the BBC licence fee just so they can promote Corbyn? A question most people have also asked about the licence fee every bloody time Farage is on question time, despite being the not leader of a completely irrelevant party. If Farage made an appearance at Glastonbury, the only notable thing he would get was the new record for most bottles of piss thrown at an individual ever, narrowly beating Daphne and Celeste at Reading Festival in 2000, obviously. Now ahead in most polls, Corbyn has said that Labour will try to force an early general election. Meanwhile, rumours suggest the Conservatives are looking to replace May with Philip Hammond as a caretaker Prime Minister. Which makes sense, as he looks a lot like he might remove his mask at any point to then blame his ruined plans on some meddling kids. The idea is Hammond would then step down when a proper successor completes the necessary trials, which involve patronising a nurse, taking money out of a homeless person's collection cup, and proving you can only repeat the same four sentences again and again for weeks. Probably. Foreign Secretary and combination of a bunion and some pissy straw, Boris Johnson, cocked up an interview on Radio 4 as he struggled to answer why much of the Conservative manifesto wasn't in the Queen's speech. It was unusual because he spent months giving answers for why the £350 million promised to the NHS wasn't actually on the side of a bus when it was, and yet he now can't work out why manifesto promises weren't there when they should have been. This, of course, came just days after Boris complained that there was too much name-calling and insulting of politicians. Yes, Bojo, who called Jeremy Corbyn a mugwump only weeks before. Well, if that hypocritical fuck-bucket twat farmer wants one rule of name-calling for him and another one for the rest of us, he can fuck right off like the felt-puzzle dismembered big toe that he is. Oh, and a cyber-attack on Westminster's main network compromised up to 90 MPs' email accounts, causing many to be concerned about data loss or leaks. Or probably just how big the backlog of unanswered emails from constituents is now, how Boris definitely subscribes to Lad Bible, and how Theresa May's sign-off is sent from my eye brain.
Hello, hello. Uh, the show is back to its usual what the fuck is going on format. And thank you for sticking with the podcast, despite the slightly necessarily gloomier episode last week. If you're an old listener, thank you for continuing to tune in and lending me your ears like uh, either uh, a Roman listener or Van Gogh. Um, if you're a new listener, then please do spread the word. Uh, if you enjoy the show, if you don't, why are you listening? And please do review the show on iTunes or Stitcher if you can. Um, someone last week, if this is you, thank you. You left a very nice review on Podbean, but I have no idea how to access it or approve it. In fact, every time I've tried, uh, Podbean attempts to charge me $90. So it was a very lovely review, thank you, but it is not worth that much money. I'm sorry, uh, with the pound currently as it is, I think $90 is around £12,000, probably. Um, you can also donate to the show if you like the noises I make. Uh, I mean, I don't put all the noises I make on this show, even though I do some really good ones like and um, quite similar noises, but very distinctive uh, if you're an expert. Anyway, but if you want to donate uh, to help me spend more time making this thing, then please head to the patreon.com forward slash parpol bro page for a monthly thing where even a dollar a month would be aces. Yes, I think that is about £60 now. Or you could do a one-off donation at Kofi. that's ko-fi.com forward slash parpol bro, which is also very much appreciated. Um, last week, just a bit of info for you, my PayPal, uh, which all of that money goes to, was hacked. Uh, well, not my PayPal hacked, but my Uber was hacked. And I know people say don't use Uber, use Lyft, but we don't have Lyft. Where are, anyway, no, anyway, someone in Russia kept taking journeys and charging my PayPal in rubles. And the bizarre situation of when uh, the Uber people ask you, why do you think your account has been hacked? And then I have to say, well, because I'm definitely, definitely not in Russia. And then you spend at least a few minutes feeling really worried that maybe you are in Russia. And what if all along I'm just an employee of Putin who's been brainwashed until I hear code words, at which point I become some sort of lethal weapon designed to take down the entire UK government via a podcast. Um, luckily, uh, my account was hacked. Um, so no worries, guys. I'm fine. Anyway, what I was going to say is if you don't want to donate, then please just spread the word about this podcast. Um, while listening numbers are a big secret, I ain't telling you guys. Um, you know, you're my only listener, right? My fav- my favourite one. Um, listener numbers are often up and down week on week. Um, and it'd be great if you enjoy the show, if you could tell other people you know and like um, to listen to it. You know, maybe they're podcast fans already, so that'd be easier. Maybe they don't know about podcasts. Maybe you can tell them how they work. Um, get them to listen and subscribe. Because how else will I use NLP to build my secret Russian army? <clears throat> Sorry, I mean, what? Oh, God. Oh, God. Uh, two very quick live things this week. Um, I'm doing an Edinburgh preview at Old Number 7 in Barnsley on Friday, June the 30th. If you're around that way, it's very nearly sold out. Um, and that is with the brilliant Beck Hill. And then I'm at the Offbeat Festival in Oxford on Saturday, July the 1st at the Burton Taylor Studio. Please come along to that because really no one is at the moment. Then the following week, I'm at the Green Room at the Black Box Theatre in Belfast, again with the very funny Beck Hill. And that's on the 4th of July. And then I'm going to be somewhere in Derry on the 6th. I have no idea where it could be a trap um but if you live in Derry I'm sure you can find out easily enough I mean it's worrying it's only a week away I really have no idea where I'm going um but it should be good fun it's a preview night too so please come along to that too if you're in that area um and if you want more details about any of these things then you can sign up to my mailing list at my own website tnnduyem.co.uk and if you go to the contact page there there's a sign up thing and I send out a thing once a month um not a thing an email well also a thing but the thing is really scary and I have no idea what it is so maybe just read 
the email and ignore the thing. Um, this week's show, this week's show, right, it has two interviews. Two, I know! Um, a brief chat with Dr Afshin Shahi, who was able to spare a tiny bit of time to me talking about terrorism. Uh, and then I've got Austin Rath, who set up More United, which is a new campaign to elect MPs based on principles, not parties. Um, I'm also going to be looking at the Queen's speech and the government's DUP deal, plus the return of Brexit fallout. But of course, before all of that, there is this bloody lot. The government have said that 60 high-rise buildings in 25 boroughs have failed their fire-cladding safety tests. That's currently a 100% fail rate. Hooray! The UK finally has 100% or something. Oh, wait. Oh, no, wait. Oh, dear. Since the horrific Grenfell Tower fire a few weeks ago, the government said that they would cover the costs of making other tower blocks safe if found. They also had the flammable cladding that Grenfell had. However, the bill for this looks set to be over 600 million with the fail rate as it is, which is a lot more expensive than it would have been just to install fireproof cladding in the first place. While the government will cover the re-cladding costs making the building safe, councils are going to have to cover the costs of installing sprinklers, which, considering council budget costs, won't be easy. And in the case of Kensington and Chelsea, where Grenfell Tower is, it'll be up to the arm's length management company responsible for Grenfell to install it, none of which will really come for any residents. And hey, I'll let you know something, 1.5 billion has just gone to the DUP, it would be 1.3 billion to install sprinklers in all of the blocks of flats. I know what I'd prefer. Uh, Camden Council evacuated four tower blocks on Friday with very little notice, causing displacement of 3,000 residents because there's nothing that says, hey, we'll make your home safe, like making people homeless. While it's well-intentioned, it's a bit like trying to comfort a sad person person with a hug but squeezing them so tightly they shit themselves and cry more. There is no update on the death count for Grenfell itself or where many of the surviving families have been relocated to or what help they're getting. Instead, focus has been on the fact that the fire was started by a faulty and unfortunately branded hot point fridge. But it's obvious that no matter how faulty that fridge, it shouldn't have caused a block of flats to be engulfed in flames like that unless there was something else seriously wrong in that building. The manufacturer of the cladding has it in their brochure that this cladding could be a fire risk and should only be used on smaller buildings that firefighters can reach the tops of. The police investigation is now ongoing and they are looking at everything from charges of manslaughter onwards and it's becoming very clear that people's lives are of less importance than scrimping on costs and it's definitely the result of neglect somewhere. I was at a meeting this past weekend where members of the Fire Brigade Union came to speak to us and uh, I very much hope to get them on this podcast soon as there are so many signs of health and safety neglect that need to be addressed ASAP. Um, Do please follow them at uh, FBU National on Twitter and read their open statement to the government on fbu.org.uk. They are proper heroes. One of the firefighters that came to speak to us uh, was on the ground on the day and Jesus, those stories were very upsetting. Um, Also, please follow at inquest underscore org uh, on Twitter. or inquest.org online and they are providing legal support for the survivors of Grenfell and the families of victims and they have posted out FAQs and advice on their Twitter and their website which is sorry inquest.org.uk and that really needs to be shared as widely as possible please do that The High Court have said that the benefit cap on single parents with children under two was real misery being caused to no good purpose a phrase that I feel could be the Conservatives next election campaign slogan Four lone parent families brought the charges against the Department of Work and Pensions and the High Court judge decided the claims must succeed, saying that the evidence shows the cap is capable of real damage to individuals such as the claimants. The DWP have, of course, said that they'll appeal the decision, stating that work is the best way to raise living standards, although they didn't specify whose living standards, and they said that many parents with young children are employed, but didn't say single parents completely missing the point of the whole case. 
Single parents, working or not, are going to be affected most by recent benefit reforms, losing up to just under £3,000 a year by 2020. So if the DWP lose this appeal, that could change things for the better. I'm more and more convinced that the Department of Work and Pensions is so-called mainly because they're just intent on getting people in work when they can't manage it so that they can then provide less of the pensions as a result. Still, nice of the law to confirm what everyone else has been thinking for ages. Parliament was hit with a cyber attack on Friday, which is incredible as I thought the whole place was so old-fashioned it was more at risk of an outbreak of scarlet fever. Fewer than 1% of the 9,000 users of the IT system were affected, but apparently those that were got hit due to weak passwords. It's incredible to think that Theresa May wants to stop end-to-end encryption, but there's nearly 100 ministers who still think it's cool to have your password as password. It's called a brute force attack, which I think means the hackers typed really angrily. And fingers are currently pointed towards either Russia or North Korea, and utter disgrace the disgrace Liam the disgrace Fox said that cabinet ministers' passwords were on sale online. Liam Fox's password is definitely Adam Werity forever. Definitely. While Parliament is up and running again, some MPs can't access their email, meaning they don't even have to find an excuse to ignore constituents anymore or any requests for a while. Meanwhile, you have to wonder why we're going to be spending all this money on Trident when the best way to protect Parliament in 2017 is probably just a two-step verification system and paying for subliminal messages on World of Warcraft telling nerds to calm the fuck down and go outside for once. Personally, I think the only way we'll ever stop the war on terror is by banning Halloween and, of course, making Hollywood promise not to make another movie in the Saw franchise. There's been like seven. You don't need seven. But sadly, as we've seen over the past couple of months, the UK has been subject to some pretty horrific terrorist attacks in London and Manchester. Many innocent people have died and the terror threat level has now been at severe in the UK for some time, meaning that at any point an attack is imminent. There was also a bombing attempt in Brussels and Spain last week and several horrific suicide bombings in Afghanistan and Nigeria. But the culprits of these things appear more and more to be individual attackers, despite ISIS laying more claims than a wooden actor in an insurance advert. So how do you stop radicalised individuals? If you ban all cars and knives from London, won't that mostly stop celebrity chefs from travelling? Is any of it to do with 90s kids and how often the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles used to shout radical? Well, this week I spoke to Dr Afshin Shahi. Afshin is the Senior Lecturer in International Relations and Middle East Politics at the University of Bradford. He had very kindly agreed to speak to me a few weeks ago and then, of course, with events as they were, he understandably got very, very busy. On the day I spoke to him, we'd planned for a long interview, but the Saudi Arabia royal family coup had happened, and so sadly, as that's his area of expertise, he only had 15 minutes spare for me to fire questions at him. That does mean that there's a lot we didn't go into, and also I didn't really get to ask him about the attack at the mosque in Finsbury Park and the rise of white nationalist terrorism as well. Um, Though to be fair, that's not his area of speciality. Anyway, the questions Afshin did answer are very, very thorough and very interesting, and hopefully will enlighten you on the current situation of global terror. Oh, and before we start, a very quick. Excuses, excuses. Yeah, this again. Sorry, guys. Um, firstly, the sound quality is OK, but you might need to turn it up for this bit as the sound at Dr. Shahi's end wasn't great. Also, I'm having to use a new way of recording Skype calls because call note is a piece of shit. And having not used this new version before, um, I forgot to hit record until halfway through Afshin's first sentence, which is lucky I hit it at all, really, considering. So, you know, be grateful. Um, Anyway, the question that I asked Afshin that I forgot to record was... Over the last couple of months, the UK has been subject to three terrorist attacks for the first time in several years. Are we more at risk of these sorts of attacks now than we have been in the past? And if so, why? 
Uh, and in response to that, he then said something very thoughtful and considerate about the victims. And then I remembered to press record. I'm really, really sorry, Afshin. Really sorry. I am, as always, a professional idiot. Anyway, look, we're leap straight in. Remember that question I just asked. And here, halfway through his first sentence, is Dr. Afshin Shahi. In the last three months, uh, I've been very shocking in every uh, sense of the term. But we also have to uh, put things into the context. Statistically, statistically, Britain and Europe are safer today than the 1970s. That means statistically, there were more terrorist activities taking place in the continent, you know, 30, 40 years ago than today. However, there is a big difference. Like in the 1970s, we did not have 24 hours news coverage. In the 1970s, we did not have social media. We did not have Facebook, Twitter, and so many other tools which could kind of amplify the impact of uh, uh, terrorism. Although what is happening right now is extremely concerning, uh, but we should not be alarmed. Of course, we should find an effective way of dealing with terrorism. Uh, it should not be accepted in any shape or form. Nonetheless, this is not the worst episode that we have seen you know, in the recent decades. So do you think that the UK are addressing the possibility of terror attacks as thoroughly as they could be? Do you think that their focus should be somewhere else? Of course, you know, uh, when we're talking about terrorism uh, and when we're talking about terrorist threats, we should not only look at the ways in which the security establishment and the security agencies in this country can help us to uh, kind of uh, resolve uh, these uh, these issues. Because the nature of terrorism has changed almost beyond recognition over the last, uh, you know, four or five decades. What we're facing with at the moment is very different with what we faced with, you know, in the 1970s and in the 1980s with organizations like IRA. Uh, the problem that we are dealing with at the moment requires, you know, a more kind of comprehensive approach because the problem we are facing with at the moment is not only a security problem. It is a cultural problem, ideological problem, perhaps religious problem, social problem, economic problem. It's very multifaceted and it's very multidimensional in every sense of the term. If we want to only resort to uh, kind of the security measures, probably we're not going to be able to uh, kind of resolve the problem. I think the British security establishment has proved to be very good in every sense of the term. They have effectively prevented many, many, many uh, atrocities, but we should not blame them for what happened, you know, over the last uh, few months, because, you know, there is always a limit uh, to, uh, to uh, what they can do. And of course, you have to remember uh, what we have seen uh, over the last uh, few years in Europe and in Britain, you know, is very different. This type of terrorism, indiscriminate violence, basically some young men highly radicalized either online or on some other platforms, deciding to indiscriminately uh, attacking people, using cars, vans, uh, knives, uh, without, you know, a great deal of resources, creating maximum uh, destruction. When it comes to a kind of methods like this, you know, it is very uh, difficult to prevent every single atrocity. And so that I'm guessing it becomes, yeah, as you said, it becomes very hard when it's just individuals carrying it out for their own personal reasons. I mean, is that because the attack on Monday uh, in Finsbury Park as well, that was also a man seemingly by himself. They refer to him as a lone wolf. But so how much of this current terror threat can be attributed to other cells in the Middle East or, or perhaps UK's involvement in other countries? Can we attribute it anywhere else if it seems to now be individuals doing it? As I'm afraid, 
you know, we can't find a simple answer for this uh, very uh, difficult question. Uh, you cannot find a single cause uh, for what we see at the moment. You cannot find a single cause uh, for uh, terrorism. Over the last few months, we had a very heated debate in this country about what is the real cause of terrorism. Some people have been blaming the British foreign policy. Some people have been blaming multiculturalism. Some people have been blaming the war in Syria. Some people have been uh, kind of blaming the situation in the Middle East. Some people have been blaming kind of uh, the rise of uh, uh, Salafism and conservatism in the Middle East. No, no, there are so many factors. And actually, all of these factors are important to give us you know, a very good insight about what's happening right now. But at the same time, I'm personally very, very reluctant to reduce what we see at the moment only to a reaction to British foreign policy uh, in the region. As I mentioned, you know, what happened in the Middle East, certainly in 2003, the invasion of Iraq uh, by United States and Britain, you know, was a very important factor because effectively it created a failed state. And within that failed state, many organizations like uh, the Islamic State uh, uh, developed. But at the same time, it would be very reductionist and simplistic to say, you know, what we see is only a reaction to Western foreign policy or British foreign policy. Because there are some other countries right now in Europe, for example, Germany, which did not have uh, a uh, kind of controversial foreign policy uh, in the region. And in fact, Germany was a country that in 2003 stood up against both Britain and United States for invasion of Iraq. And over the last few years, it has kind of, uh, it kind of had a very uh, kind of inclusive and humane foreign policy. They opened their uh, frontiers to uh, millions of refugees coming primarily from uh, the Middle East countries like Syria and Iraq. Despite all that, Germany is still targeted by organizations like uh, Islamic State. So although foreign policy is a factor, we should definitely have it in our equation when we try to assess the situation. But again, we should not, you know, reduce everything uh, to foreign policy. It is an important factor, but it doesn't uh, explain uh, everything. So so it sort of sounds uh, to me, and, and I find it personally, you know, quite hard when there isn't one factor to look at. You know, it's quite hard for someone, uh, say myself, just looking at the media going, then what, how do we address it if there's so many factors? Do you think that now we're just seeing a kind of combination of a melting pot of various things then? Is it, are we in a kind of, a, kind of a culmination point of lots of factors? Yes, I mean, all these factors, are, that's, this is exactly why I said right at the beginning of this conversation that we should not only resort to the security establishment to solve this problem for us, because this is not only a security problem. You know, there are so many different elements uh, in this equation. Uh, you know, there is foreign policy element, there is a social element, there is cultural element, uh, there is religious element, there is even a mental health element, because time and time again, it has been kind of proven to us that lots of people who... Uh, are radicalized and kind of they undertake these atrocities uh, in Europe and in Britain, uh, they, they have been suffering from some type of uh, mental illness. Of course, that doesn't justify their atrocities, that justify, uh, you know, the gruesome actions that, you know, uh, they have done. Nonetheless, it gives us kind of a wider framework to analyze the situation, because if somebody is suffering from mental illness, if somebody is uh, kind of uh, vulnerable in that sense of the term, uh, probably it's more likely to be drawn to gruesome ideologies and gruesome organizations like the Islamic State or Al-Qaeda. So basically, this should give us a better reason to have a more kind of comprehensive uh, approach uh, to, to the problem. 
and basically think of all these factors, think of all these elements within a comprehensive manner to be able to come up with uh, uh, an effective, uh, an effective uh, strategy. You know, over the last few months, some people have been talking about the failure of multiculturalism. Some people have been talking about the lack of uh, integration. Some people have been talking about identity politics and basically the forces that are reacting to globalization, the rise of tribalism. You know, all these factors are important and all these factors are valid enough, certainly, uh, for, uh, for discussion. But to what extent they are accurate and to what extent they can actually provide uh, explanation for everything, obviously, is a matter of debate uh, and uh, discussion. Sure. Do you think as well that we have, uh, it's something that I feel again personally really, but do you think we're focused too much on the effect of terror, say, in, in, in the West, whereas actually it's affecting the Middle East just as much and often to a greater extent? Um, the thing is, I mean, it is understandable. Like if something happens in Manchester and if something happens in London, uh, if you happen to live in this country, if you happen to live in London or Manchester, you are more likely to pay attention to it. That doesn't necessarily mean you are indifferent to the suffering uh, of uh, other people in other countries. But you are absolutely right. Uh, if you do look at what's happening right now in the region, if you do look at what's happening right now in Iraq, Yemen, and Syria, there is a great, great, great deal of uh, human suffering. And very often, uh, they don't get uh, uh, enough uh, media uh, coverage. But at the same time, I can't blame the British media to kind of give more coverage to uh, kind of atrocities that we have seen in places like Manchester or London, because it is only natural. Like if your own house is on fire, you are more likely uh, to pay uh, attention to it. But you know, uh, terrorism is not a British problem, is not a European problem, is a global problem. Uh, and in certain countries like Syria and Iraq, you know, a lot of people have suffered. Think of what has been happening to these poor uh, Yazidi women and girls who were taken as slaves, as sex slaves by the Islamic State, and the kind of trauma that they went through, the kind of experiences that they went through, they are just unimaginable. Uh, and yet, you know, probably they haven't received uh, enough uh, news coverage. Uh, and again, you know, I don't have this kind of conspiratorial view of the media, that, you know, the media is kind of biased and is only looking at uh, kind of issues that are uh, closer to home. I mean, I don't think there is any conspiracy behind that. It is only a natural reaction because, you know, if your own neighborhood, if your own city, if your own country is under attack, it is only natural, you know, to pay more attention to it. Sure, sure. I mean, I, 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 uh, I totally agree with you. I do think um, uh, I, I wonder if the media obviously have to oversimplify things. We've already discussed there's so many factors as to why terrorism happens. And often the media like to limit it down to just being about religion or, uh, you know, just being about one factor. Although I guess that's partly because they tell stories and that's what they do that's part of their job yeah. um but i mean you know looking at the uh you know for years we've had the 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 notion that isis is responsible for a lot of these things are they still a big problem i mean as we've said earlier a lot of these attacks have been individual lately so should we still be concerned about groups like isis i think what is more dangerous than isis is the causes that paved the way for the creation of isis uh, and these kind of uh, conditions, these kind of uh, preconditions that helped the creation of ISIS are still there. Uh, and of course, we have reached a situation that we no longer uh, can separate the local from, uh, you know, uh, global. And now we live in an environment, we live in a time 
that basically often local issues are connected to global issues. For example, what is happening right now in Iraq, what is happening right now in Yemen and Syria clearly has an impact on what is happening uh, right now. Basically, if you do look at the ways in which some of these youngsters are getting radicalized, they often get exposed to uh, um, some of, the, some of the, the things that are happening right now in places like Syria, Palestine, uh, Iraq, uh, and, and Yemen. And often these terrorists use uh, kind of British foreign policy or American foreign policy or what is happening right now in Iraq and Syria or Yemen as a justification or legitimacy uh, for, for what they do. Although their justification is not acceptable, but it gives us a clue that obviously what is happening three, 4,000 miles away from here still has an impact on uh, what is uh, happening uh, here. So ISIS, uh, you know, ISIS is an organization which emerged within a very, very specific uh, environment. And the environment which create, which helped uh, the creation of this organization is uh, still there. Like the kind of situation that we see at the moment in Iraq is very, very hospitable for the rise of other similar organizations. I mean, even if you completely annihilate the Islamic State, you know, today, even if you completely annihilate uh, other organizations like Al-Qaeda, that doesn't mean we're going to see an end to transnational jihadism because the conditions which helped their creation are still there. So at the moment, we are primarily focusing on the symptoms of the problem rather than the causes of the problem. I think ISIS is a symptom of the problem. Al-Qaeda is a symptom of the problem. Terrorism is a symptom of the problem. And if we want to effectively uh, kind of provide a remedy for these symptoms, we need to look at the causal issues. We need to look at kind of the structural issues. And, and for that reason, we need to have a more comprehensive uh, uh, approach to, to the problem. So does that require a more, as you said, we need to look at it as more a global issue. Does that require just more communication between countries, more kind of tackling of all the, I mean, we've been through all the many issues that contribute towards this. What, I mean, where, where on earth do we start? <laughs> How do we begin? The thing is, I mean, all of these issues are interrelated, uh, but we don't need to kind of uh, uh, deal with everything uh, at, uh, at uh, you know, at the same time. I mean, we, I mean, of course, I say that we need to have a comprehensive approach, but I'm not suggesting that we need to have a comprehensive policy, which deals with every single uh, kind of factor uh, at the same time. We know that identity politics is very important in this country. Unfortunately, uh, there are some fundamental societal issues. In certain uh, parts of the country, integration, social integration has not been uh, very successful. In a situation that uh, integration has not been very successful, this is specific, uh, and of course, I'm, maybe I'm talking about a very, very small community, that, that very specific community maybe can become very vulnerable to some other things uh, that are happening uh, elsewhere. For example, what's happening in Iraq, what's happening in Syria, what's happening uh, in, in Yemen. Uh, so despite the fact that, you know, we may think that, you know, they are not related to each other, but they become related because basically this specific uh, group of people, although they may be very, very small, they may get easily uh, kind of affected by the kind of narratives, the kind of ideas, the kind of imageries that we are receiving from, uh, I don't know, these, uh, these uh, conflict zones. 
So obviously, it is very difficult to, uh, you know, uh, come up with uh, a sharp policy which can resolve all these problems at the same time. But what I try to say is that we need to kind of broaden our lenses. We need to kind of broaden the framework to kind of understand the situation. The first step to kind of resolve the problem is to have a better understanding uh, of the situation. And to me, a better understanding of the situation is about recognizing the problem that we are facing at the moment is not only a security problem, it's not only a political problem, you know, it is a lot broader uh, than that. And recognition of this fact, I think, is the right step uh, on the right direction. Fantastic. Um, okay, just uh, one last question for you, and that's uh, simply, obviously, apart from your Twitter and your research and all the work you do, um, is there anywhere else you could recommend that listeners look at to kind of get information that gives a broader outlook on things, um, you know, away from, say, headlines? Are there any websites or any people you recommend following um, that you could just uh, mention? Um the thing is, I mean, we live in the age of uh, information. Uh, there isn't a single uh, news agency that has kind of monopoly over the news, certainly in the world that we are living in at the moment. Um, so simply by going to Google News and basically searching for for the headlines, you come across dozens and dozens of uh, you know articles from multiple sources. What I suggest is just like make sure that you have diverse sources. I mean, I very much respect the BBC, but I never only read the BBC. I read the BBC, I read Al Jazeera, because I speak Arabic and Persian. I read some of the Arabic sources, I read some of the Persian sources. Uh, if, you, if you don't speak other languages, a lot of important newspapers around the world uh, have English section. Uh, you can actually go to their websites and basically look at uh, their uh, perspectives. So if you really want to have a better understanding of the situation, if you really want to have a better insight about what's happening in the world, you need to diversify your sources. You need to kind of broaden your perspectives by just like looking at, you know, more than one uh, news source. And of course, don't rely too much on uh, Twitter. Twitter, of course, is a very effective and important tool, but it's very often about people expressing their own personal opinions. Personal opinions are important because they reflect on competing perspectives and competing ideas about various uh, issues. Nonetheless, you know, there are a lot of uh, sources available at the moment, and a lot of them are online in this country and overseas that you could uh, refer to to get a better insight about uh, the world that we are living in at the moment. Big thanks to Dr. Afshin Shahi. Uh, he can be found on Twitter at Afshin Shahi, at A-F-S-H-I-N-S-H-A-H-I. I found that a hugely interesting chat, uh, although his comments on the need for a more global conversation just as the UK and US shuts itself off from the outside world is, as always, hugely depressing. Uh, hopefully I will get Dr. Shahi on for a longer chat at some point on a future episode. Interview two in just a few minutes, but first... It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com.
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. The Queen. You know her. She's like Judy Dench, but the Queen was only in one Bond film and it was really, really short. Well, for every year for the past 64 years, the Queen has officially opened Parliament, with a bunch of people dressed like alcoholic, depressed Santa Clauses, a man who knocks on a door using his black rod, <laughs> that is never not funny, a speech that the Queen hasn't written or decided the contents of, and basically the government shove a bit of paper in front of her, she begrudgingly reads it with less emotion than Jake Lloyd in The Phantom Menace, and then, that's that, the government's next year is all set out for them to U-turn on several hundred times. But this year, it was all a little bit different. This is partly because next year there won't be a Queen's speech as, like Glastonbury, she needs a fallow year for recovery after being stomped all over by half-assed policies. I would like to think that, like at Christmas next year, we'll have some sort of alternative Queen's speech uh, by Edward Snowden or something, but I've got a feeling that that won't happen. And yeah, I do find it quite hard, as you might have noticed by this point, not to pronounce it Queen's Peach, which makes it sound like she presents her butt to Parliament once a year, a somehow both pleasing and horrific image all at once. Anyway, the other reason that this year's Queen's Beach was a bit different was because it was a little thin in the way that Slenderman would probably tell it to have a sandwich. With the Conservatives not getting a majority government and with their agreement with the DUP being decided several days after it, there wasn't a lot that they could promise. The Conservative manifesto has disappeared from their website as though it was never there in the first place and it was some sort of horrible dream, imagined by a fox, probably. And instead, Her Majesty read out 27 bills, eight of which had to do with Brexit, which I'll get to in a minute, and the other 19 are things of a variety of levels of importance. There's a bill to boost electric car production in the UK with compulsory insurance for self-driving cars. And to be fair, as long as they have to make the boring phone call to the insurance company and then pay for it, that is cool with me. There's a bill to build a British spaceport. Yes, the government is so confident that Brexit trade talks will go well, they're planning to fall back on trading with Martians. There's the high-speed rail bill, which takes the HS2 that no one likes and thinks is a waste of money and makes it go past the London to Birmingham route all the way to Manchester, Leeds and Sheffield, annoying even more people even more quickly at prices they can't afford. Then there's the smart meter bill, which means every firm and home will have smart energy meters by 2020, which I assume are just energy meters you can also watch Netflix on. Uh, there is a bill to scrap Class 2 national insurance for self-employed people. Uh, not quite as controversial as their previous one, but still that might end up with that. Um, there is an update for the Atoll Travel Protection Scheme, assuming that we'll be able to go anywhere with the pound being so low that you'll struggle to buy biscuits in Calais anyway. 
The more interesting stuff, though, comes in with the tenant's fees bill, which is a ban on estate agent's fees. You know how they charge you 200 quid because they photocopied something and then drove you around in their shitty mini telling you a cupboard has enough room to swing a cat in it if the cat is a flea and you don't have to swing it at all? Well, yeah, that would go. And that would be great for all renters and house buyers, but this is just a draft bill at the moment, meaning that it may not be a law by 2019 at all anyway, so hey, what is the point? Also, a draft bill is the Domestic Violence and Abuse Bill, which would be very important, creating a legal definition of domestic violence and sentencing powers if it involves a child, as well as creating a specific post for a domestic violence and abuse commissioner. But again, this may not happen by 2019, and chances are that the man who puts sexist twat into he's a massive sexist twat, MP Philip Davis, will probably try and filibuster this before then, claiming that he once hurt his foot kicking someone to death, so hey, men suffer too, you know. However, what isn't a draft bill is the courts bill, which is going to ban direct cross-examination of domestic violence victims by abusers in courts. And it's going to use video link hearings to stop victims' needs to see assailants face-to-face. And that is really, really important stuff. The courts bill is also going to allow people to plead guilty to minor crimes without going to court, something that will save time and money. But I'm a little bit worried that it feels open to abuse if it's done online. I mean, if you've ever left your computer alone for two minutes and found that your Facebook status now says how much you love boning watermelons, then you can imagine how this might go. The last draft bill is the Patient Safety Bill, which aims to protect whistleblowers by making the sharing of their information used in investigations illegal, and it would bring in a new health service safety investigation body to probe any NHS scandals. It is draft, so again, might not happen, but if it does, it's probably going to feel pretty weird for doctors and nurses to have a body probing them for once. The Civil Liberties Bill is going to stop people getting whiplash claims without medical evidence, which is good, because I once had someone claim that because I hit their bumper in first gear at the lights, and their kids sat in the back still playing computer games without giving a shit, so it clearly wasn't bad enough for me to lose six years no claims, you utter fuck. Sorry, it still hurts. Unlike their imaginary whiplash... The Finance Guidance and Claims Bill is scrapping the Money Advice Service, the Pensions Advisory Service and PensionWise to make the single financial guidance body just merge them all together like a giant transformer. Because we all know, you know, things get just as much care and attention when lumped into one massive group with less of a budget for everything. Uh, There is also a good mortgages bill that will allow people to use goods as security for a mortgage or loan. And I knew I was keeping my old Super Nintendo for a reason. Bungalow, here I come, mate. Uh, It does also promise to cut red tape for lenders, uh, which doesn't sound good. And I guess that could mean anything from interest rises for lenders to those lenders kneecapping me because I didn't give them the Super Nintendo cartridge of Super Mario Kart like I promised and now I have to leave my bungalow. Then the last few bills include the Armed Forces Bill, uh, my favourite armed force is Gravity with a Knife, and the Armed Forces Bill aims to get people from more diverse backgrounds into the army so that they can be shot at as well. Uh, Then there is the Data Protection Act, which enables the right to be forgotten, which would delete all your online records. However, the Tory Manifesto, when it used to exist, said that that would be records from before you were 18. This bill now doesn't specify an age, and when the party implementing it has just deleted their manifesto from online, you kind of worry that it may be used for bad. Things that aren't official bills as well in the Queen's list, but these are suggestions that you kind of hope are happening anyway, um, include a pledged review of mental health legislation, which is needed, a public inquiry into the Grenfell Tower fire with an independent advocate for the bereaved families, and a counter-terrorism review, which just deals with terrorism across the counter in retail stores. Ha! I joke, but badly. So, that is it. That was the Queen's speech. That's it. It's not that long. It didn't take me that long to tell you all of that. And the Brexit laws, uh, obviously, also included, which I'm going to deal with a bit later on in today's show in the Brexit fallout. 
And you might have noticed there was absolutely no mention of the dementia tax. There was no mention of the fox hunting ban repeal or anything about Trump's state visit. Though Boris Johnson has guaranteed that Donald Trump will be visiting at some point. And when has Boris Johnson ever lied about anything? But of course, all the things in the Queen's speech were before. You heard a DUP. You heard a DUP. That's right, the government have just handed over £1.5 billion for DUP support in a move that signifies Theresa May as the sort of friendly top negotiating trustworthy leader that can't get people to do things for her out of friendship without cash involved. Now, there is a ton of problems with this deal. For a start, the money is going to be used in Northern Ireland for infrastructure, but the UK Parliament are meant to attribute money accordingly to all devolved parts of the country at once, according to the Barnet formula, which sounds a lot like it solves things by giving everyone haircuts or making them live in North London. But actually, the Barnet formula isn't legally binding, and the Treasury decides how it's done. But basically, it works on the basis that funding for things in England or any part of the UK have the same pound per person effect on money going to the rest of the UK. So if, as the government have promised, they give £1.5 billion to Northern Ireland for infrastructure, then Scotland should get £8 to £9 billion extra and Wales get £3 billion extra. As I said, it's not legally binding and the government can use it how they want, but by completely subverting it, it rattles more cages than a really, really angry monkey. Like, really angry. Like one that's properly drooling and has red eyes and shit and you worry if it's got some sort of virus that will kill everyone. That sort of angry. Then there are the accusations that this deal with the DUP break the Good Friday power-sharing agreement in Northern Ireland, as it gives the DUP a much higher seat at the UK Parliament table than Sinn Féin, who don't even take their seats and therefore don't have one at all. Sinn Féin's President Gerry Adams said that this gives the Tories a blank cheque to deliver their Brexit, which would threaten the peace agreement in Ireland due to a hard or at least some sort of border with the Republic. Though, of course, if Adams had been watching any of the news for the past week, he'll know that having David Davis doing EU negotiations means that there's every chance none of that will happen, as Davis will probably cock it up within a few days. A power-sharing agreement has to be made in Northern Ireland by June the 29th, or there's talks that it could end up with direct rule from UK Parliament again. And with the DUP now propping up the Conservatives, this really doesn't feel like it's going to end well. I saw a radio DJ and often Newsnight presenter James O'Brien post on his Twitter feed about how he just can't help but imagine how this would have played out if Corbyn had somehow won the election and then told Sinn Féin he was giving them a ton of money so Labour could become more powerful. People would lose their shit. It's like everything the Conservatives warned about the possibilities of a Labour government was some sort of giant Freudian projection. A coalition of chaos, terrorist sympathisers, magic money tree... God, I really hope that this means we're at least only a few days from them suddenly scrapping Trident. One of the biggest problems with voting is knowing that while there might be a local candidate that you like, you might not fully like their party or their leader, or in the case of the Conservatives, both and more. The last snap election had the focus securely on which party leader to vote for rather than which local candidate, and the results showed that maybe party loyalty just isn't a thing anymore, with people switching sides quicker than me on red-button footage during Glastonbury coverage. Yeah, occasionally I just wanted to see what it actually is Ed Sheeran does to attract such a crowd. No, I'm still absolutely none the wiser. More United is a movement that focuses on supporting MPs from across all parties that stand for a series of values. In the last election, More United's members' donations went to 49 candidates, 34 of which got elected, which really isn't too bad at all. 
I donated to More United a while ago, and so I got to vote on which candidates they backed, and I really liked it as a new way of looking at less divisive politics. So this week, I spoke to Austin Rath, co-founder of More United, about what, why and how More United works. Here's Austin. So, hi, Austin. Um, first question, really, is what... Well, in fact, firstly, what is More United? Because I sort of see it as it, it's a campaign. It's also an initiative. I think it's personally, I feel like it's kind of a new way of looking at politics. How would you describe it? Yeah, I think that's right. So it's a the way we describe ourselves is we're a new movement for people who want to get involved in politics and particularly those people who haven't been involved in politics before, but they want to make a difference. Um, and we're based around. So what we say is we're about backing people, not parties. So we're nonpartisan. Um, and I'll, I'll come on to a little bit. Uh, in a sec to talk about the general election we've just had and how we played in that. But we don't we don't uh, sort of favour one particular party over the other. What we have is five values, um, which are on our website, which you know, if you want to have, I won't sort of waste all your time going through those now. But <laughs> they're things that are, you know, around the environment um, and making sure that's a priority, having an economy that bridges the gap between rich and poor, uh, having an immigration system, uh, that is is open and saying Im- immigration is a good thing. It needs to be managed, obviously, but it's a good thing. Um, we believe that you know having uh, fewer international borders, is, you know, we've got to break down barriers internationally, not put them up. So we're not nationalists, and it's that sort of. I think, you know, politics is very much being driven to the extremes and we see that all the time. You know, the, the, the left shouts this and the right shouts that, and actually more united was started on the belief that most people millions and millions of people don't have beliefs that exist at the political extremes and those people are not represented by a system where increasingly the dominant voices are getting towards the extreme you know you you start throwing the word extremist around it becomes a bit you know we don't want to go around calling people extremists but if you look at things like donald trump um winning uh, an election uh, in America, which is pretty terrifying. You know, the sort of traditional centre ground stuff where most people are is not getting represented. I think Brexit's an, an example of that in some senses as well. And then you've got, you know, the same things on the extreme left, which is a, a much more powerful than, than they were. So what we want to do is create something new. And particularly what we wanted to do was to create something that was online. So, you know, most people uh, get most of their news and information online. Traditional political parties um, are not dead. They're not going anywhere. We need them. Uh, and we're not a political party and we're never going to be one. But what political parties don't do is give, you know, ordinary people who aren't prepared to put a rosette on and give up their weekend to go knocking on doors or delivering leaflets. You kind of can't really get in. You know, you haven't really got a way of, of helping. You've got you've got to pick a side. You know, you've got to pick the red team or the blue team or the yellow team or the purple team, um, and then that's it. You're you're all them and, and not anything else. And actually, you know, there are MPs and candidates across all parties that are good people who agree with our values. So what we ask our people to do is, is sign up as supporters. We've got about 80,000 of those, um, which is you know, we're pretty proud of. We only launched just on a year ago um, or just under a year ago. So it's pretty good. Um, and then the main thing we've done uh, – so far is crowdfund. So we've raised uh, just over half a million pounds from two crowdfund campaigns, which we used to back uh, candidates in the last election. So we backed 49 candidates from Labour, Lib Dems, Conservatives, uh, Greens and the Women's Equality Party. Um, And those candidates, the criteria for them 
being backed by us was that they backed our values and that they had a chance of winning. That that's basically where we're at. And and our members, um, so and our members are anyone who's given us any money is a member. So there's no minimum sort of you know membership fee or anything like that. You make any donation, you become a member. They got to vote on those. So. We sort of, if you like, vetted them and had a look at these candidates and had a conversation with them to get them to sort of say, yes, I, I'm i going to publicly say I'll support these values and if I get elected, I'll fight for them. And then that those uh, candidates went forward to our membership for a very simple yes, no, no. Um, so the, the ultimate sort of power is, is absolutely where it should be with is with our members. So we ended up backing 49 candidates with money. We also uh, drove volunteers to them as well. We had uh, well over a thousand people uh, moving to go and help in different places, which is fantastic. Um, and we got 34 of those people elected. So there are now 34 MPs across um, Labour, Lib Dems, Greens uh, and the Conservatives who uh, signed up to our values and are now committed to defend and promote those values in Parliament, which is fantastic. Yeah, um, and that, and that's the end result, really. I mean, that's the point is if you sign up to More United, what we're going to give you is you give us a little bit, whether that's a little bit of time, a little bit of money, a little bit of just space on your social media, whatever it is, it really doesn't have to be much. But we add all that effort together across thousands of people and it makes a real difference. And we've just seen that in the election. Sure, sure. No, I, I think it's fantastic. I, I'm, I'm just going to wind it back a little bit because I've got quite a lot of questions to ask you. But um, what made you set this up in the first place? Was it just a sort of disillusionment at how politics is going? As you said, it was becoming too extreme in either direction. Or was there a specific thing that caused this? I think there are two things. I think there's definitely an, an idea we felt like, why is it that only extremists get to be passionate and effective? Right. If you look at Brexit, and by the way, you know, it's important, really important to say this, that, you know, the millions of people voted to leave the EU and those people are not extremists. I mean, you know, that there are lots of people who were, could have gone either way on that. And, mm. you know, the, 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 it's important that we don't sort of caricature that. But if you look at the people who drove that, if you look at people like Nigel Farage and UKIP and some of the sort of extremes in the Conservative Party, they, over like 20 years, ran an incredibly effective campaign to take Britain leaving the EU from being a absolute obsession of a bunch of crackpots, frankly, uh, in Westminster and in Brussels. No one took seriously. And then they got it on the agenda. They raised a profile. They argued for it. And in the end, they won. Right. Now, why is it? We started more united for two reasons. One, why is it that people who have what I would consider to be progressive values that we need to work and help out internationally, um, that we need to try and make the world a smaller place, that we need free trade and decent jobs and we need to look after the environment, why people who believe these things had to always feel like they had to be modest about it and be quiet about it? Mm. You know, we should be as aggressive as the extremes are. You know, why, why do we have to hold moderate views immoderately? Why can't we be passionate? So it started with that the other th the other part of it was that we just felt that and i you know i've been involved in party politics and a few of the people involved in more united have and, and we've got a bunch of people who haven't as well it, political parties are not going anywhere but they're also not for everyone even labor with half a million members and you know credit to them for everything that they've done in terms of mobilizing those people half a million is still a fraction of a fraction of the British public. And most people just don't want to do that. What we needed to do is offer them a way into politics that didn't involve having to pick a side. Um, because people don't really want to do that. They don't want to say, OK, I'm now Labour, so therefore I have to oppose everything everyone else says. It's just not how we work. You know, you keep saying to someone, 
on the other day, you know, like you can you can subscribe to Amazon Prime and Netflix, right? And they don't make you hate yourself for doing it. You know, it's like it's not it's not how it's just not how we actually operate in re- the real world. But politics makes you pick a column and stand there, and you immediately have to defend everything that your team does and and slag off everything anyone else does and that's not really a very appealing thing to a lot of people so we wanted to provide those people with a way in and say look here's something where if you agree with our values you can get involved in this and it's not about who you vote for or what's going on in your constituency or or, or whether you're a member of political party or not it's really simple if you help us out we'll add that together with a load of other people and we'll make a difference and i think we're we're getting to something. I think the success we've had shows that we're right, Mm. that people don't, you know, there is a market out there. There are millions and millions of people. I believe there are are millions and millions of people who really, really, really care about politics, really care about, you know, their education and the health service and whether their kids will have a good future and the environment. They care about these things uh, and they want to get involved, but they're not going to join a party. And and we, we exist for those people. And do you think, I mean, the last election, I feel personally, showed me that actually party loyalty isn't what it used to be anyway. I think, as you said, you know, I think if there was ever an expression of people voting maybe for policies or for a change or rather than sticking with their team, it felt like that came across on the election result. Yeah, and I think that's right. And also what's interesting is if you think about the behaviour of people in political parties, and I say this as having been one myself for you know a long time, it's actually kind of weird, right? Like you you find yourself in this position where you're not really looking anymore at what that particular party says or does. You're just defending it because you're wearing that colour shirt, right? And and in reality, that that ends up being a bit odd um, if you follow it through because you end up defending the indefensible and, and all sorts of things. I don't think most of the public think like that. And parties can change. You know, you, if you look at – there are a lot of conservatives who were really, really uncomfortable with the way that Theresa May was taking the Conservative Party before the general election. You know, they didn't like the aggression. They didn't like the nastiness. They didn't like the negativity. They didn't certainly didn't like all the sort of hard Brexit, you know – uh, screw the lot of you, um, stick two fingers up at the world kind of approach that she seemed to adopt. But those people get tired with that brush. And because par- parties can go off in different directions, we've seen the Labour Party, you know, disappear off to the left and then kind of come back again. And, and, and you know, they'll sort of, they'll all sort of move. What we wanted to do was create something that was really stable in the middle of that. They said, look, now actually, we're going to kind of be a centre of gravity in this to pull people towards a set of values where it doesn't matter you know it's not about the name because if you take one of our mps you know anna subri who's a fantastic mp conservative mp who's a brilliant constituency mp and you know very active in the remain campaign exactly the sort of person i think we should have in parliament if the conservative party were full of anna subris it would be really a different thing to the Mm. thing that it's kind of become right so it's not really about the name and the title it's about the people and that's where we want to really make a difference is by going if we can fill parliament with as many mps as possible who agree with these values bad things will stop happening and more good things will happen regardless of who's in power or who's up or who's down or who's the leader of this or who's got caught with their trousers around their ankles this week. You know, all that stuff is just day-to-day Westminster nonsense. What matters is having as many MPs as possible who are making good decisions. And does it... Yeah, have you, have you come across any issues? Because I know you said you're non-partisan, and I noticed that when I was voting for candidates. As you said, you had uh, Anna Subri from the Conservatives, but you had several Labour and Lib Dems and Greens and Women's Equality. Yeah. Um, but obviously, you're quite uh, anti-Brexit, I would say, <laughs> judging by your principles. Yeah. Have you come across any 
problems in in where you've positioned yourself like that? Because I mean, looking at all your values, I'd say it's hard to say what's centrist now, but I'd say you're sort of centre centre left, judging by the principles. Um, Does that kind of limit? Yeah things you know <laughs> i think we, we'd probably say i'd probably yeah i mean i'd probably say sort of center rather than center left though you're right i mean because when you start talking about terms things in terms of center ground what you're doing is you're positioning yourself relative to other people and actually i mean we literally do the opposite of that we don't think about that at all we say here's our values and different people will pull up those on their own like we all have our own version of that political spectrum, if you like. What I think centre ground will be different to what you think it is. Now, to answer your question, though, about the parties, I mean, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are a load of people who can't sign up to this. I mean, there are there are people in the Labour Party who, who couldn't sign up to these values. And we spoke to the people in the Conservative Party who couldn't sign up to these values. And that's fine. We disagree with those people. And we want them to, we'd rather they weren't in Parliament. We'd rather they were replaced by people who did agree with the values. You know, it's not it's not completely benign what we're doing. We're trying to we're trying to influence the outcome um we're, and we're our and the, the really important thing with how we set up more united is because we have values so we've got these five values that's the answer to every question because we've got to avoid it's important you know there's things that are, are short term and brexit is massive and it's not short term but it's also not going to be the main issue in 20 years either if that makes sense so we're against brexit because we believe that the the, the future has fewer borders in it than the you know than um, than the past has. So therefore, of course, you're against Brexit because Brexit is fundamentally about putting up more walls rather than taking them down. You know the same about new nationalism in, in Scotland and Wales. It's the same idea about pulling back. So yeah, we're against it. And if you you're if you don't agree with that, then you're not going to come on board with us. And that's good because we're not saying everyone agrees <laughs> with everything. We are, but what we're saying is we want to promote these things, and we believe most people agree with these things it's just that the debate's been hijacked by very very loud minorities sure yeah it's, it's sort of um I, I guess when i was saying sort of censored left i i'd argue actually you're more progressive that's what it is they're all very progressive uh, yeah that's a word i'm happy to use i mean i think it's it's, diff- it's so difficult and we frankly we can tie ourselves in knots trying to think <laughs> about the language of this stuff because it's all it's all so loaded you know you start saying progressive and whatever we certainly have the thing that we feel pulls more united together is an optimistic view of the future. We think the future can be better through better international cooperation, investment in science, education, all those things. So, yeah, I think they're progressive values. And I think most people share them. Let me tell you, mm. A load of people in the Conservative Party share them as well. They're just it's a bit difficult for those people in the current political environment to speak out. And one of the things we want to do is enable them to do so because we'll say, look, actually, if you're a conservative MP who goes on TV and says, look, immigration is not a bad thing, like uncontrolled immigration causes problems, but immigration itself is not a bad thing. And, you know, that our economy w- will grow if we have good, uh, well-managed immigration. We all want it's better. We have a better world if those people feel able to say that. And one of the ways we're trying to help them is to say, look, if you say that, we're going to stand with you and say it. And our people on, you know, we'll have the people on Twitter and the people on Facebook who will back you up so you're not out there alone. Um, And that's really important because what happens when things become divisive and very, very heated is that the moderate voices just don't speak anymore because if they say anything, they get eviscerated uh, online. And we've got to stop that. We've got to get create a situation where people feel like they can say what they actually believe. Definitely. No, no I, I mean, it's one of the things that drew me to more United. I think I personally, I'm very sick of politics become, being so divisive and being so negative and generally 
you know, attacking, uh, yeah. less promoting the, the values of the, the party's own politics and more attacking other people for what they don't have. And what I liked about More United was saying, this is what we want and we're promoting it in a very positive yeah. manner. And I thought that was very nice. Yeah, yeah. And we don't, I mean, and it's not that, you know, people, as I say, people want a choice. And it's not that we think we can teach the world to sing or that everyone agrees with everybody. But you're right. We, I, I, I'm, most people, I think, agree with what you've just said, which is, you know, they are sick of it always being so, you know, when was the last time you heard two politicians from a different party say, I, we agree with each other? And actually, do you know what? They agree on loads of stuff. They agree on loads of stuff. They just don't dare say it. And we've got to change that. And More United isn't the entire solution to the problem, but it is our, it's our bit of the solution. And I think if you look at, you know, I, I really love looking, if you go to our website, there's a candidates page, and you'll see all of our candidates we backed, all 49 of them. Let me tell you, there's some different people on there. If you take someone like Caroline Lucas, you know, who, from the Greens, um, who's a fantastic MP, and Anna Subri from the Conservatives, those two people don't really agree on very much, or you wouldn't think they did, but they agree on our values and they're happy to both be on the same website saying so. And that's really, really good. It's really good for everybody if we can get people to start behaving like that and not have it be something they're scared of doing. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and, and just uh, lastly, and, and obviously I advise all the listeners of this show to go and check out More United and find your Twitter and everything, but as well as More United, are there any other campaigns that, that you particularly like or that you looked at when creating More United that you think are pushing politics in a more progressive and perhaps positive way? Well, I think, I mean, there's, there's thankfully one of the things that, that's come out of the referendum is that, that there are lots of people who previously weren't thinking about um, uh, politics who now are thinking about it. Um, and there's, I think I was really impressed by, uh, it's a very, very different thing to more United. So, you know, just personally, I was very impressed by the, the effort that was put into tactical voting, um, websites at the last election. I think there were, you know, two or three of those that really were really great at informing the public. Uh, and that's regardless of, you know, this kind of outcome you were aiming for. Um, I thought they were doing that really well. I mean, interestingly, when we looked at for more united it wasn't just that you know we didn't just learn from the campaigns we liked we learned from a lot of campaigns we don't like um because this is one of the things a lot of the most effective campaigning organizations in the world are people i don't like look at like the nra for example uh, in america incredibly effective campaigning organization um, that raises money and elects people and tries to influence the outcome of elections in order to push an agenda it's an agenda i find I mean, I find it weird as much as anything else, but pretty terrifying. Mm. But it doesn't mean that they're not effective. Um, so you, you can't, you know, you've got to look at everyone who's playing the game and look at, you know, and one of the other things that, that you know, this came out of was a little bit of frustration with progressive people as well, who, you know, there's a lot of people in Britain who are active in progressive politics who spend a lot of time talking to each other and not talking to the public and also will say, uh, oh, yeah, we could fix it if only the system were different. Now, our electoral system is, you know, bonkers by any measure. It's absolutely, I mean, try explain. I, I've spent the last week explaining to American friends of mine how you can have a whole election that no one wins. Now, of course, it's absolutely, it's <laughs> absolute nonsense. Of course it is. But it is the system we've got and we can't all sit around going, oh, well, we can't change. We, if only, if only, if only. We've got to get in the fight. And the thing about More United is it's a really practical thing. It's about getting in the fight 
and winning some elections in the system we have. And then, you know, then you can start to change things. There are other campaigns. I mean, I've been inspired for a long time by there's a campaign uh, in the States uh, called Emily's List, which is a very effective campaign uh, which raises money to help uh, women. Um, and they really, you know, pioneered a lot of the things that we're uh, that organizations like More United um, are using. But it's like, I think we're like anything else that's new. Um, we're not, you know, we've taken the best of what we've seen elsewhere, put it together in a different way to create something different. You know, we didn't dream all of this up. We do things that uh, we're standing on the shoulders of other really effective campaigning organizations. But I also don't think there's anyone else who is uh, doing what we're doing. Um, I think there will be, and that's great. I mean, you know, one of the things that people say all the time is, you know, you're not worried about someone else coming on and, um, you know, and, and copying you either, you know, with your agenda or, or with an alternative. Well, like, no, because the more ways people get involved in politics, the better. I mean, I genuinely believe that. I think it's it's good if people come up with new ways for for people to engage because, you know, politics is so far behind. If you look at how the world's changed in just the last 10 years, you know, here we are having a conversation on a podcast. You know, if we had a, took our time machine back 10 years and mentioned podcasts, you'd find about, I mean, there might, there might have been a couple, but, you know, it's, it's the, the world's changed so quickly and politics is nowhere near that, so far behind. So there's a lot of catching up to do and we're part of that and so are a load of other people. And that's, you know, that's only a good thing. Many, many thanks to Austin for speaking with me. Um, you can find More United's website at moreunited.uk and they are on Twitter at moreunitedUK and the same on Facebook. As always, if you have anyone you'd like me to try and interview or any subject in particular I should try and find someone to interview about, please, please let me know. Uh, as I've mentioned before, who I get each week on the show largely depends on who I've wrangled that week via bothering them on Twitter. So any useful contacts or recommendations are always, always welcome. Do drop me a line at Bro on Twitter, the Partly Political Broadcast group on Facebook or Partly Political Broadcast at gmail.com or show off your plume and do a complicated tap dance on a high branch and either I'll see it and get your message or you'll find a mate. So win-win really, but still emails are probably easiest. For the question of the week this week, I asked you, the plebs, what should have been included in the Queen's speech that wasn't? Uh, I did have to stress on Twitter that the it was for comedy answers only, as the way that Twitter works now is that people assume comedy just isn't a thing and doesn't exist, and then just reply with a series of manifesto promises that actually weren't included. And I've already covered all that dull shit if you've been listening. Anyway, luckily, loads of you have a sense of humour, and you sent in some proper goodens. At Mini Mayor said that there should have been an announcement of a Royal Battle Royal Act. Um, I wonder who would be included in that. Would it just be members of the royal family having to hunt each other down until there was only one? Or members of Parliament? Either way, I approve. Um, at Foxhill underscore Matt says, uh, wait, there's a crossed out bit here. Kill all the poor? Yes, kill all of the poor. Something else about a money tree. Can't make it out. Yeah, that's my uh, that's my Queen impression. You are welcome. Um, Andy Gilder says uh, the Queen should have improvised it, got MPs to shout at a half-baked policy, a random cost and a disadvantaged group of people. Um, I love that, Andy, because I've always thought that the Queen's speech should be just like an improv game where just like out of nowhere, uh, somebody has to shout like film noir and then the Queen would have to go, yeah, you see, my government promises to do. And, you know, just uh, I don't know what accent that was, but it'd be great. You know, uh, musical. And then she has to sing it. I think it would really jazz it all up. Um, at Ed underscore son says uh, stands 
tears up speech, holds the mic and goes, Oh, Jeremy Corbyn. Oh, Jeremy Corbyn. And then points to the crowd. That would be amazing. Um, at Chronicle Flask says, Hello, ordinary person. Please maintain a minimum separation of three feet. Uh, she says that will make no sense if you haven't watched Doctor Who. I haven't, but it's still fun. Um, at Alvim says, uh, The lyrics to Everything's Fucked by Pitch Shifter. Uh, now, I didn't know that song, uh, so I've looked it up. And, and to be honest, it's probably worth you just looking it up yourself. It's quite noisy uh, and includes lines like, uh, we got nothing to see, we got nothing to do, we got nothing to take, we got nothing to lose, and there's nothing we like and there's nothing we lead. you got nothing to say because I'm telling you everything's fucked. Um, which actually wasn't, you know, I, I think that was kind of a more succinct way of putting what she said anyway. Uh, Matt Kinson says the odds for all the Ascot races she was missing, along with the tic-tac hand gestures. Uh, Andy Zoidberg-Walker says the resurrection of Frankie Howard, repeats of brush strokes, and then all back to Liz's for a swingathon. Um, that's really grim. Um, Paul Jenkins a, says a proper sustainable regulation of Freddo pricing policy. The country is in utter chaos and we need action if we don't want further unrest. Fuck yeah, Paul. It is disg- I really still thought that they were only 10 and I was proved wrong the other day. How sad is life? Um, Philip Alexander said it's just be just the lyrics to Jesse J's price tag, which I, again, another song I didn't know, not quite uh, as um, strong as the pitch shifter track, uh, but it does include the lines, everybody look to their left, everybody look to their right, can you feel, yeah, we're paying with love tonight, which, as far as I'm concerned, wouldn't really fit anything that represents the government whatsoever. Um then, uh, then Benson Mike uh, at Benson Mike on Twitter sent a very, very long one that I'm going to just read out and you can rewind and listen to this again until you work it out. Uh, loneliness plus alienation plus fear plus despair plus self-worth divided by mockery, divided by condemnation, divided by misunderstanding times guilt, times shame, times failure, times judgment. N equals Y where Y equals hope and N equals folly. Love equals lies. Life equals death. Self equals dark side. I am the revelation that time Tiger force at the core of all things. When you cry out in your dreams, it is dark seed that you see. And you see how that works. Uh, well, I mean, it took me a while, but listeners, you have a go. Um, at Cantus replied to it by saying, this would be good if she said all that, followed by silence. Then she'd sighed, got up and dragged out a whiteboard to explain it. Fuck yeah, that would have been amazing. Um, thank you. Amazing answers, all of you. Uh, next week, there'll be a new question on Sunday. Do check the Twitter at Bro or the Facebook group, uh, Partly Political Broadcast, uh, to find the question and send me your answers. And I may well read them out and you will get the wonderful prize of just exposure. Uh, that's that's what people always say to me as a writer and comedian. You'll get exposure from it. Th- thanks, mate. What does, does that? Can I pay bills with exposure? I mean, really, I've tried exposing myself to the landlord, but they did not like it. Brexit It is just over one year since the UK voted to Brexit. The pound is at its lowest in ages. Businesses keep leaving the country and the government only has a slim majority backed up by bribery. But hey, Twitter and Facebook profiles with union jack flags are on the up by 640%. So I think you can all agree it's going very well. But aside from most opinion polls showing that Brexit really isn't that popular with the public anymore, while Theresa May says that 80% of the public voted for it because she doesn't know anything, where exactly are we with Brexit? 
Well, the Queen's speech, as I mentioned earlier, has eight Brexit-based bills in it, most of which we've known about for ages. Uh, there is the repeal bill, which used to be the great repeal bill, you might remember, but now feels a lot more honest as it's just the repeal bill and will convert EU laws into UK laws. The customs bill, which, like the repeal bill, will replace EU customs, such as the custom of kissing on each cheek or perhaps eating versed in the cinema, probably. Uh, then there is the trade bill, which is currently just those words and some more words about having the necessary legislative framework to trade outside the EU. I mean, yeah, well done for saying you'll do the one thing you really need to do, idiots. That's like me having the take a shit bill, where I promise to make the necessary legislative framework so I can have a shit every day. Necessary. The fisheries bill is similarly vague, but something about having separate fishing quotas, but who knows, right now it could just be a red herring. Ha, I went there. Sorry. Um, the agriculture bill just promises to give farmers stability, so I guess that could just be extra good shoes or something for them to lean on while chewing some wheat, if Theresa May hasn't already run through and ruined all of it, that is. Uh, the nuclear safeguards bill does what the repeal and customs bill will do, but for nuclear regulation. And the sanctions bill will allow Britain to impose non-UN sanctions by ourselves, such as asset freezing and travel bans. If you remember back in episode 56 when I spoke to Naomi Hurst at Global Witness, there is a lot of laundered money that goes through London and the property market, so this sort of thing could be used to clamp down on that, though I'd bet a decent chunk of dough that it won't be used for that whatsoever. Uh, by dough, I do mean bread because I'm trying to cut out bread and I don't have any handy laundered money to throw around. Uh, the other bill in the Queen's speech to do with Brexit was the Immigration Bill, which stops free movement for EU nationals. And that brings us to... Brexit negotiations. Yes, Brexit negotiations are now on the table and the EU have a high chair that lets them see all of the table and get at the fruit bowl, while the UK are on a very awkward footstool that means we're just about peering over the edge with a very numb bottom. So far, the Brexit negotiations have mainly involved David Davis accepting the EU timetable offered by Michel Barnier, agreeing to not have parallel talks about trade until the negotiations are over and discussing EU citizens in the UK's rights immediately. It turns out that when Theresa, I once thought I finally had emotions but it turned out to just be a sneeze, May, warned that we could have Jeremy Corbyn at the EU negotiating table, she was right. She was right to warn us. It is tons better having David Davis there as the way things are going with him will still be in the EU by 2030. So, May has proposed that EU citizens who've lived in the UK for five years have full rights to stay, as well as access to health, education and other benefits and the rights to bring their family over. But this depends on what offer British citizens in the UK will get, and also there hasn't been a specified cut-off date given for the five-year terms. David Davis has suggested that EU citizens in the UK might be forced to apply for identity cards, although he did say they aren't ID cards because they won't have to be carried all the time. Yeah, sure, David. You know, in the same way a spade isn't a spade because I'm not always digging with it, or a slap in your stupid face isn't a slap in your stupid face because, sadly, it cannot consistently be there like you deserve, you giant numpty. The EU wants these rights guaranteed by the European Courts of Justice. May wants rights for EU citizens guaranteed by British courts, with a grace period of two years for EU nationals to gain UK settled status. Because yeah, nothing would make an EU citizen in the UK feel more settled than the last year of shitty politics where they've been used as bargaining chips in a power game that makes Zach Morris from Saved by the Bell look like a negotiating grand wizard in comparison. Lastly, can you guess who this week is it that's leaving the UK because of Brexit? Because of Brexit. Well, not so much leaving this week, but really not arriving. Uh, because it's 80,000 fruit pickers who, due to the wheat pound and Brexit, aren't coming over from Europe to help summer fruit and salad growers in the UK pick their crops. And that means we may see a shortage of British fruit and veg in the shops very, very soon. David Davis, once again, proved wrong when he assumed the UK would be able to cherry pick. 
And that's all for this week's Partly Political Broadcast. Um, thank you once again for listening, and please, please, please do spread the word about the show. Review us on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, just to make me angry because I can't access it. Or, you know, etch it in your school desk so a school child in 30 years' time can read it while they bemoan that school supplies still haven't changed in ages due to cuts. Do donate to the Patreon or Kofi if you can too, as it is all hugely helpful uh, for me, you know, and helps me spend a lot more time on this show. And this is going to be back next week, all up in your earpieces, as I will no doubt be explaining why the DUP have made the government insist the London Natural History Museum's Dippy Diplodocus has fake news written all over it, while Jeremy Corbyn opens for Justin Bieber at the British Summertime Festival. Till then, bye! This week's episode was brought to you by the letters DUP, which not only stands for the Northern Irish Democratic Unionist Party, but also the Dances of Universal Peace, a practice that involves wearing flamboyant, brightly coloured clothes and dancing and marching and making a lot of noise. I mean, how funny is that? They're so different from each other. That's not at all like the DUP by the marching and the no- oh, oh. oh. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.